The Hit Mix 107.5 FM The Power Station with Colin Curtis
Show me how 
someone to show me how I want to get that feeling
Good evening. Good evening, everybody. It's uh, Colin Curtis, and it's the usual Friday specials. And this near to Christmas, and Tim's come out of the house. So, Tim Ashibandi is with me. Good evening to you, sir. Good evening, Colin. And um, what can I say? What can I say? Um, we've got four hours of music. We've had a chat again this morning, but, I mean, we kind of had a plan. We talk about Blackpool Mecca, talk about Wing Casino, a little bit beyond that as well. Um, also some of the tales of finding some of these records in the States and uh, Tim's the man uh, to give us the information on that uh, we kicked off there with some records just a mixture of records Tate, Love Shop uh, Who Will Do You Running Now I, I mean just feeling a way into into the vibe that was going on at Blackpool back then uh, where all of a sudden you know the tempo could change because of the nature of the building itself because of the low roof uh, the way that all the speakers were fired onto the dance floor it just allowed you and um, we had a very open minded crowd at that point to uh, to be able to start experimenting. Those early days uh, and moving stuff around, but there you go, four records to get us going. Uh, Daybreak was in there as well, and uh, again a little bit of a Marmite record for you, sir. Yeah, it is, Colin, yeah, there's just something about it. Uh, when it was being played at Wigan, um, obviously it was in between some fantastic 60s stuff that Richard was playing. You know, so you got things like Country Girl, Cecil Washington, etc., etc. Then you got Daybreak, and I think I said to you off air, just you know, I was a bit impolite about it, but there's just something about the backing for me that doesn't work. I like the other side, Everything Man, um, and and I, d I don't dislike the vocals in um, in that side, but there's just there's just something about it. It's a bit floaty. It's a bit. It just seemed out of place to me, and I'm I'm sure. I'm sure people completely disagree with that, and that and that's fine. But it, I, I, I think sometimes that's what, that's why records do catch uh, people's attention. Probably, because yeah. they are different. And, and as you say, at that particular time, um, it was a heavyweight time for Richard Serling in terms of you know he was the top man with uh, with John Anderson. So you got this whole. Uh, well, absolute tirade of records because I mean, you know, the Mecca had finished, um, and this this was a period when he'd got access to a lot of tunes, a lot of covered up tunes, and yeah, you know, um, and and trying to create that that vibe again because it, it, there was a period when Wigan had, had kind of lost that vibe. I think with that record as well, what troubles me a little bit about it, and always did, is it's a very strange rhythm. I mean, bear in mind it's a dance scene and and that Wigan was all about that, you know, about getting the dancers on the floor en, en masse. That has a very strange rhythm if you've just danced to something that's four beats to the bar and typical, you know, which, which Rich, and Richard was playing a lot of that stuff. And then, and then on comes like Daybreak and Larry Houston where either slow or, or odd rhythms and that's what threw me a little bit as well at the time because I could understand... Some other things like uh, Janice and so on, that, you know, they had a beat, they had a, a recognisable dance yeah, beat. Yeah, 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 yeah. But things like Daybreak, they sort of uh, wrong-footed me a little bit. I think, um, again, we can see, you know, in, in, in terms of the venue, I mean, at, at that point, you know, the main emphasis is on the, is on the big room. Uh, and I think, you know, the On The Force stuff was, was obviously going to be the favourite all the time. I mean... What I just said in that first piece uh, uh, about Blackpool Mecca is is it was completely different. You've got a low roof, you've got a different vibe. And when we started to play records that had got you know, different backings, different vibes, um, even to the point, I mean, I mean, 
you know, that downtown pool. I mean, Carstairs bringing stuff that in later. Um, but Gil Scott Heron, there was a different vibe. And, and, and I think I saw a, a dance floor adjustment from people yeah. that probably then came through uh, later at Wigan because, um, you know, when the Mecca had gone, um, you know, Wigan was continuing and, and, and still fulfilling its role to provide Northern Soul in the traditional way. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one a whole new influx of, of top tunes as you say so I can't hear what you're saying so uh, first three choices from Tim coming your way now we're 16 minutes after 8 and we got uh, all the way to midnight so plenty to do push them back Say 
of course, the choices tonight from uh, my very special guest and very good friend, Mr. Tim Bundy. And um, 24 minutes after eight, and so talk us through them. Let's start off with Reggie Garner, Hotline. Yeah, Reggie Garner. I played uh, Reggie and Al Kent because, as far as I recall, they were the first records I bought in Wigan Record Bar. And uh, Al Kent was an absolutely massive record I just got to have. I mean, it was getting hammered. And I just had to have one. And to put this in perspective in terms of prices at the time, I bought, uh, I bought Al Kent, Reggie Garner, and the Apollos, Mr. Creator. And of those three, by far, Al Kent was deemed to be the most sought after, most expensive. And the Apollos was kind of a, a little bit of an also-ran, you know, like not quite up there with the other two. But obviously five quid. Um... And then there was a period later when Al Kent came right down in price. Reggie Garner, always liked it, obviously one of you, I can't remember who, used to play it on it, Tiff's all, all, Tiff's on a no, Sunday yeah. night. Well, I would play it because it, it went so huge. I mean, in, in fairness, I've got to give the credit to Levine for pushing it in the first place, and then I got a copy fairly easily back in those days. Um, interesting, though, what you're saying about um, about Al Kent, you know, being so big. What what year would that have been, Tim, for you? I mean, you, you, you're buying that as your first record. 76. Bar. 76. So, I, you know, I started playing that record probably, um, I'm just looking on, there isn't a date on there, but I'm sure I would have been playing that record at the end of the 60s, maybe the early 70s. I'd probably been hearing it since about 74, I yeah. would say, 75. Yeah. So, so that goes back even further for me. And to hit, yeah, I mean that would be a record that in in those early days would be, you know, less than a pound. Yeah. Um, you 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 you're buying records like that, and I did good act and surprise party for baby. They were all imports, but they they would have been under a pound in those early days. But so I I played that as as a record that I related to the wheel, um, but was a very big Torch record before the All-Nighters and a very big Tiffany's record. I think I paid two quid for Reggie Garner, which was neither cheap nor expensive. I think it, it was supposed to be about right yeah, it, at the it, time. It, it was in the middle, you know, prime to picking up plays at Wigan. It, 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 it was really just to make a record. It wasn't even one that I would necessarily play at a follow-up all day, you know, if it no. was out of the area. It, 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 so, you know, for, for Wigan to pick up on it and do so well and we talked about another record similar the, you know the Mark Capage which we had covered up for sure yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah which didn't stand the test of time well it sounds about seven years old and it looks it on, on the picture old, yeah. the, the thing <laughs> is I, I, I think Reggie Garner was only about 15 or something, yeah. something like that well yeah. I don't know if you remember this but the rumours at the time was, was that Reggie Garner was Michael Jackson well well, I'm going to say no more on that one. I don't. I, you know, I've, got, I, I've got nothing to tell me that. Uh, nothing to tell me that at all. I think but it was along, locally, probably, along with probably the, a Michael Jackson copy. Yeah, yeah. I think it was along with the rumor that David from David and the Giants was David Cassidy. Do you remember that one? Yes, I do remember the one. that one. I think that was dispelled. Though. I mean, even yeah. though they weren't black, I mean, it didn't no. dispelled. Uh, uh, the, the third one there, yeah, Colin, the the sweet, uh, the sweet, a big, a big, a big favorite of Mr. Mitchell. Yeah. Just full on, full bore, proper northern, Motown esque, obviously. Um, the funny thing is about that record is the way it starts. I always think it starts like some kind of a Jerry Anderson, Joe 90, Thunderbirds type theme. With all those strange noises in it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But does, then it yeah. kicks in, yeah. absolutely top draw northern. And the funny thing is, 
you never hear it anymore because I guess it's too fast, understandably. Yes, yes. Now you, what you'd have is the other side is the is the popular side, something about my baby, yes. which is mid tempo yes. and of course the same backing track as the epic Sandy Golden uh You'll Love Us Everything. Yeah. Mega yeah. rare. Yeah. yeah. Uh sharing the same backing track. Actually the same it's the same producer, Nate Fortier and Tim Lawson, I think, are the producers. I wouldn't be surprised if Sandy Golden was either the lead singer of the Sweets or one of the group. So tell us a little bit about, because uh, we talked off air, tell us a little bit about the Soul Town label, because um, you know, we've talked about our friend Mr. Simon Susan. But let, let's, let me just let me throw in the, the chips then. There's that mountain, which is originally released on the yellow label what was that called I can't remember Soundville so, yes yeah, Soundville yeah. and then and then turned up at the torch time <laughs> yeah turned up on, on Soul Town on, on Red well Soul I think Town. that was just uh, Simon Susan taking some uh, <laughs> some some license with some <laughs> you, you know I, I, my understanding is though this is where it gets complicated is that he knew and had some kind of business legitimate business relationships with people like Bobby Sanders and Soul Town. Yeah, yeah. Now, to what extent that those relationships stretch to him, you know, actually, shall we say, reissuing things on the Soul Town label and, and Bobby being on side with that? Who knows? I mean, you know, the Simon Susan's business background is complicated. It, 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 but, it, would, you know. it would be a multitude of conspiracy theories, but, yeah. but, you know, there is the potential, as you say, that he knew Bobby Sanders, and yeah. and, and and the potential is that if money changed hands, who yeah. knows how many blind eyes may have been turned. Yeah. Um, but you know, certainly, um, you know, I got the chips on the original label, but I, I remember it being for sale at the Torch. You know, on this label. Well, he's an interesting one. The, you know, the other side, love can't be modernised. Yes. Well, the love can't be modernised version on Soul Town. It's a different version than the Soundville. Because on the Soundville, you don't get... There's, there's a part of the one on, on uh, Soul Town where he says, hit it, Jack, and then the sax comes in. That's missing on the Soundville one. So Jack so, didn't hit it. No, uh, well, what... what it, so I don't know, and I don't know anybody who's got the, a Soundville one with that in. So I don't know whether... The, the version that came out on Soul Town was actually legitimately released having been taken from a Lendual tape. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Don't, I don't know. It. I've never spoken to anybody who's got the Sound, a Soundville legitimate release with yeah. the Hit It Jack bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, very well, useless trivia. But. More, well, all trivia is not useless. <laughs> it's not useless at all. Baby, I know.
me and kind of playing devil's advocate and uh, you know trying to stick in a little bit of each of the styles that was played at Blackpool Mecca. Um, you know, kicking off with one that uh, originally bought for I think it was two quid off Mr. John Anderson. Thank you very much on Soul Dimension Records back then. But what immediately attracted to me to it was um, Lorraine Chandler and yeah. Jack Ashford. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, and and strangely, uh, the record I played and the record that that got people's attention by Paul Maker was Payback to Drag which is the other side um, and did very very well for me at that time um, and you know looking at this 1978 when eventually released on uh, on Grapevine Records uh, but there can be a better way just old school from nowhere yeah so uh, did you Lovely come across record. that record back at the time did you get a chance to buy one uh, I bought one uh, much later than Wigan but first heard it at Wigan um, that can be a better way. Yeah. Um, but the not the not that copy. The magnificence. I mean, it's the same, same record, same same group. I guess. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I always yeah, loved that record. I, I remember Lorraine Chandler in an interview explaining that one or the other of them shouldn't have come out, or, or did they come out without yeah. her permission? Which <laughs> we're already talking along those lines with everything else that we talk about. Permissions is something that um, <laughs> it's for the birds, really, not 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 getting dealt with. Uh, but then uh, I moved on to another young lady called uh, Ruby Andrews. This is 1976. It's a brand new release. I remember the day I bought it, and immediately started to play it in the last hour at Blackpool Mecca. Um, and yet, all these years later, another track, uh, another seven-inch thing that was always in my box, which was Just Loving You, I never played. Mm-hmm. On, on the odd occasion I included it in, in, in an earlier set of unknown stuff, it never really got a reaction. And yet that went on to be a, an absolute classic. And Yeah. Oh, yeah. But strangely, again, uh, this Ruby Andrews track, I've got a bone to pick with you on ABC, wasn't on the album that she had out at that time. This was something that was left off the album and then put on afterwards as, as, as a lead-off single, uh, but was never on the next album either, so we don't know what was going on there. But great record for me. And then um, the man himself, Mr. Jeff Perry. Yeah, great record. It doesn't get any better. Carl really like was in that yeah. bag, wasn't it? I, I mean, that was... Um, you know, Love Don't Come No Stronger was obviously a, a more commercially... Uh, but that's classier, I think. That, much classier. Mm. Much, much classier. Colin, just before you play the next three, I just remembered there was something I wanted to say. I had a little story about Al Kent, actually. Let's go back to that, yeah. In 1991, I went on a trip to Detroit, and it was actually a trip, uh, really, to meet people who I'd tracked down as opposed to an out-and-out record trip. So, you know, on that trip I met, Manuel Lasky, Freddie Butler, Narbe, Dina Barnes, Herbie Williams, Raymondette from, you know, Michael and Raymond, Buddy Lamp, Cody Black, blah, 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 blah. So, Lots yeah, of people. All right, you, no, hang on a bit. Hang on. You can't, you can't <laughs> just say that. You can't just say that without justifying how that actually happened. I mean, just go back o- over those names. Emmanuel Lasky, peace-loving man, swooped down on you. Uh, was it Emmanuel Lasky? Because there was some conjecture. Emmanuel Lasky. And I, I interviewed, met him and interviewed him at his girlfriend's house in Detroit. Wow. And it was all prearranged, and it, none of that was random. It was all prearranged months in advance because I knew I was going to be going. I, you know, I, I said, this is when I'll be there. Can I come and visit you? And yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so, you know, I'd made plans to do that. I, I, w- I was knee-deep in this thing of... I, I'd, I'd made a decision that... I, I didn't just want to look for records randomly. Because when you go on a record trip, it's random. 
you might find nothing, you might find everything, but whatever, you don't know what you're going to find. No. I want you to do it in a more targeted way. So I'd target specific records and spe specific artists I wanted to speak to, interview, uh, because they, they, were, they had interesting records to me. And I thought, you know, doing that, I, I would hit many birds with one stone because I'd get records, information, get to meet the people behind the, the great records, maybe photographs, sheet music, you know, etc. etc. It's just a completely holistic experience. And that's, for the most part, how it turned out. So that was the, the root of, you know, that's how it all began. And so I made arrangements to go that's, there. That's kind of taking the John Anderson thing maybe a step further. I know John, you know, met many of the artists and, and went through all that. But to to be actually you know, targeting the things because you know you're going to be in Detroit. Just just say those names again for me while I go and chase my phone. <laughs> there was um, there was Dina Barnes, Buddy Lamp, Cody Black, Fred Bridges who was obviously behind, you know, Brothers of yeah. Soul and you yeah, know, yeah. Baby Don't You Weep and all that yeah. stuff. Um, Raymondette from Michael and Raymond. Herbie Williams, obviously associated with, you know, quite a lot of stuff, including the Pied Piper stuff. Sam Ward. This is before he'd, you know, come before over to the UK. <laughs> uh, did I mention Cody Black? You did. Um, Nabe. Nabe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was amazing. Uh, a whole host of people. And, and I've got to say... I've done this a lot now. You know, I've been doing this since, on and off, since probably the first one was Laura Green in 1980. Butch and I met her. But, you know, ever since then, I've been doing this thing of, like, tracking people down and meeting them as far as possible. And I've got to say, doing that in Detroit, it's especially, it was a special experience because almost universally, the friendship was phenomenal. Yeah. These people were approachable amenable, humble, completely giving in terms of information. They opened the homes up to me. They put me on to other people. It was an amazing experience, and probably because that city, musically at least, is pretty, or was pretty cohesive, and it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's a very incestuous place. So, for example, when I met Joe Hunter, who was a fantastic contact and a really good friend, a good guy, took me to see Billy Kennedy that same day. And we were wow. sitting in Billy Kennedy's house and he, I'm looking up on the wall and he's got eight by ten photographs of Emmanuel Lasky and Martha Starr. You know, so... And, and you know, it, it was that sort of experience where it, it, I just felt completely like, yeah, this is exactly what I wanted this experience to feel like. I mean, Dina Barnes... Well, I'm, I'm going to play Dina Barnes in a bit, so I'll talk about that later, but... Yeah, it was just a fantastic experience. So, on so, the so if, if if you take, I mean, you're saying that you 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 access people's houses and all the rest of it very yeah. friendly. Laura Green was obviously signed to RCA back yeah. in the seventies. And what where was she at in 1980 when you got to her? Yeah, well, what happened was with Laura Green, um, somehow or other, I ended up with a 12 inch. And this is funny because this kind of involves you as well. Or, or an era, an era that you were deeply involved in. It was when, it was when yourself and Neil Neal and others were playing a lot of twelve-inch stuff. Yeah. So I started to jump on that bandwagon, thinking, "Well, I, I see this stuff all the time. I'll, I'll see if I can, you know, pull some things of interest." So I was getting twelve inches when, whenever I could get them cheap. And then I was, I was, I don't know if I ever gave you any, but I gave some to Neil Neal and said, "You know, are these yeah. any good?" 
In one such batch, there was a 12-inch by Laura Green. There was indeed, on an orange label. And Soundtrack was the label. Yep. And anyway, I played it, obviously. It was, it was too disco for, for my taste. But, funnily enough, on the bottom of the label, it was a new release virtually, and the address was there. So I wrote to the address, got a lovely letter back from a guy called Victor Salupo, who was, I didn't know this at the time, he was her manager. Anyway, cut a very long story short. Subsequently, the next time Butch and I were out in New York, we arranged to meet them. They were lovely. I mean, Laura Green was just a stunningly beautiful woman. <laughs> uh, lovely. Both of them were lovely people. And at the time, Laura was doing um, commercials. She, she, she was doing commercials for, like, uh, toothpaste ads and... Nescafe, you name it, you know, yeah, she, yeah. she was she was making a lot of, you know, a, a big career out of that. Um, well, yeah, I, 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 I remember, you know, in, in those early days of the 12s, I mean, I mean, you know, it was even before the period that you're talking about, uh, but all of a sudden, uh, th you know, through the American distribution, as well as the major labels, RCA, Epic and all those, I mean, and Arista, all of a sudden you, you did start to get a lot of the independent stuff coming over as well, and Laura Green was one of them. She Never became one. a big record, that particular one you're talking about, but um, it got a few plays, it did get a few plays.
go through more of uh, Tim Ashley Bendy's choices and uh, kicking off I'm, I'm the last one of course very much uh, a Blackpool Mecca record back in the day and kind of fitted in uh, obviously we had uh, Freddie Chavez so Luke Records uh, became a, a, a focal point for John and I mean I, yeah I got my copy of John but we kicked off there with a record on uh, Riker Records uh, Tommy Bush I Don't Like It Wigan Stormy I mean I, I love I love the label as much as I love the record. The label's just fantastic. This, this is a trip to John Anderson for me. And um, the two big records that I came back with were... It, it wasn't a prolific trip for John. And, and uh, we went through some stuff. I bought some uh, known stuff. Uh, but the two big unknowns for me were the Casanova 2. We've got to keep on. And this. And I covered the Casanova 2 up for a couple of weeks as the Casino Brothers is uh, you know, the, the only record <laughs> I've ever covered up in my life, I think. Um... And then Tommy Bush. I struggled to get Tommy Bush away at the Mecca. I loved it. I, I, I liked the hook. I liked the vibe of it. But by this time, it wasn't didn't fit the Mecca. No. Whereas, you know, the Casanova 2 did fit the Mecca. Um, and so I was pleased to find out later that it, it, it did become a big record at Wigan. Well, of course, it's got a great beginning. You know, it's an impact beginning. It's a, it's a loud, raw record. And it just sounded so good at the casino. But as I say, the label looks awesome, doesn't it? Just yeah, really, really nice, nice label. In fact, the kind of label, I know it's nothing to do with Japan, but the kind of label you'd expect to find on, on uh, in Japan, uh, you know, with the cartoony stuff as well, just uh, looks absolutely brilliant. I'm assuming it's the same Riker label that um, on the last show, Colin, I played the... Uh, Fabulous Jades on yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm assuming it's the yeah, same I setup, think so. although I different think label so. design. Yes. Um, and then Aubrey Wilson. Uh, no, nothing uh, about that record, except I always liked it. Obviously on a big label, Epic. Uh, always liked it. Uh, and they used to play it a lot, and you, I, I never hear that record anymore. No. Yeah. I never, I never hear it, or never hear anybody even no. talking about it. Um, this is another record that was a Keith Mitchell record, but not a Keith Mitchell play record. But he would always play it in the house you know, before we were going somewhere, or if I was around there in the week, it was a record he'd always put in a pile, you know, just to stick on the deck and turntable, almost trying to convince him and me and himself that you know it was worthy of a play uh, but I, I mean how did that fit into William just just it was just something a that few plays it, it was something I heard there liked it and, and sought it out to buy you know but as I say it's kind of gone off the radar seems seems that way anyway and then this you know again coming across this record and 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 owning it for the first time and obviously i've had the freddie chavez and that came from uh, brad um in Cologne. and uh, then you find another record on luke and it's written by freddie chavez yeah you thought you know what's going on here this this won't be any good but it is it's a nice record isn't i was going to comment on that i i think that's Probably the classiest record on the label, you know, in, in terms of any northern interest. I always liked it, always thought it was good. And the other side, can't take no for an answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a little bit faster. Uh, as you say, written by Freddie Chavez, as is another good one on the label, The Checkers, Lack of Love. And it's funny because I actually tracked down Freddie Chavez in about 1978, long before, obviously, he turned up at one of the... You know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the Soul Festivals and every, yeah, yeah, everybody's yeah. dog met him. Yeah, I tracked him down about 1978, and it was completely random. I, I bought some LPs from a place in America, and they turned up. And a couple of them I didn't know, but they were by artists I knew. If you, if you see what I mean, I was just taking a chance on it. And out of one of them fell a, a business card, 
for Freddie Chavez in an Albuquerque address. And I was thinking, wow, this is amazing. And I wrote to the address. Yeah. Next thing you know, a couple of weeks later, I get a letter from Freddie Chavez. In 1978, with a photograph of him in, in whatever group he was in at the time. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, that, that was kind of quite friendly. But there was there was a dismissive element to the letter in that he was sort of saying, yeah, well, that was a very long time ago. And, you know, they did it. no interest. I but th- what I he th- did... I think, I, think, I think a few artists over the years, it, 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 it must be a kind of shock. <laughs> I think it was a shock. And I think he was a bit bemused. But what he did do was, because... In a little bit of subsequent correspondence, I asked him about Dave Newman. And what he did was, he gave me Dave Newman's number and he says, this is the number for his place of work. I said, oh, great, yeah. So what does he do? He says he's an Albuquerque policeman. <laughs> wow. So wow. I called some police station in Albuquerque <laughs> to speak to Dave Newman. I didn't get Dave Newman. I got whoever the death sergeant was who was completely baffled by the whole thing, you know. And I tried that a couple of times and got nowhere, so I gave up. But uh, I noticed that uh, there's some recent release by uh, Izifo, is that how you pronounce the label? Um, yeah, Izifo, yeah. With, of a Dave Newman that, track. That's big stuff, yeah. Um, of a of a Dave Newman track yeah, yeah. Th- this year, 2023. Yes, yes. And I played it and it's kind of, it sounds sort of jazzy Latin to me. So it must be something there's interest in, I guess, for them to release it. But so, yeah. and it, it, it sounds like the same guys. I'm, I'm assuming it is. I'm assuming he's, um, you know, Mexican heritage or something similar, you know. Yeah. The same I, I, guy, I, I, you know, I, I, popping up all I these mean, years later. David Newman, who was the jazz artist anyway, it's not that guy. So, um, no. yeah, there's, there's a very good chance. So, yeah, I came, I came close to Dave Newman, but not close enough, you know. The, the police, he wasn't on the shift. My <laughs> <laughs> shift when I, I called him. So you never actually spoke to him No, I never but touched you, you, That was a good attempt, though. I tried. Uh, but I always liked the record. And, again, it's another one that's totally dropped off the radar, overshadowed by Freddie Chavez, yeah. but... I think it's a classy record. It's a very classy record and did did very well for quite a while for me at Blackpool. So, and again, I have to say, not a record that would would necessarily end up in a set if I was doing it all day the following day. It very much became you know that vibe, that that feel, that mid tempo just yeah. above um, was very much a Blackpool mecca thing at that time. So, this trip, I mean, you've reeled off you know some serious royalty there, and um, you've still got a bit on Al Kent, but. Uh, how much preparation and how did you do the preparation to you know, you to have these trips in any sort of organised fashion? Was that telephones or letters or...? Yeah, I, I, there was a hell of a lot of organisation to the point where it, it took over my life. And, and I, I can say now, looking back, with no shame really, uh, I was obsessed with it. You know, I was obsessed with it because it was actually really exciting. And the reason I say it was exciting was because there was a lot of potential positive outcomes, you know, if things worked out. So records, acetate, sheet music, photographs, yeah. interviews, you know, it was, it was the, the outcomes were, were, were amazing that were possible. Um, but the other thing was that, you know, you were opening up all sorts of vistas, you know, you're opening up all sorts of, you're making your own look, you know, that's what I liked. And I, and I was learning that, you know, if you put enough effort in, things would happen. That's the thing. In terms of preparation, what I'll say now, which is quite funny, is everybody now, everybody's dog now does this. 
the amount of people now on Facebook saying, you know, yeah, I spoke to her on Facebook, to him on Facebook, you know, spoke to Connie Questel on Facebook. So, and it's like, yeah, okay, good on you. You, know, you just, you know, put a search in, you know, Connie Questel, you know, whoever, you know, all these people. Yeah. Bear in mind, back then, nobody was doing it. I didn't know anybody else who was doing it. No. Um, I was having to do it in some very expensive ways so, and, and long-winded ways. So I was having to do snail mail, you know, writing to a, a letter to America, yep. getting a letter back, which actually now I'm very grateful for because I must have about 15 A4 folders at home full of letters, and I kept the envelopes as well. So you've got all these beautiful letterheads wow. of letters from people like Charlie Colello, Jimmy Wisner, you know, all these household names you see on labels. But I was having to make long-distance phone calls. So, for example, I'd be calling International Directory Inquiries and saying something like, can you tell me if there's a Frank Bendinelli in anywhere in Philadelphia? You know, the Patty and the Emblems guy. And they'd say, yeah, we have a Sunsuch Bendinelli. I'd say, give, okay, give me that number. <laughs> and sometimes it worked. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. However, I do remember Butch and I and... and the other friend we were, Pablo, in, in Detroit doing that. We looked in the Detroit phone book and found Thelma Lindsay and called. And the, the woman on the other side, you got the wrong Thelma <laughs> Lindsay. So, you know, sometimes it I'm works. I'm not prepared to love you. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, yeah, the preparation was amazing. I was having to really put the work in. And I just need to finish my Al Kent story, Con. So, you know, do it, do it, right. do it. Part three of the Alcan story. I promise <laughs> I'll finish it this time. It, it will. It will become it, a series. It will. <laughs> so in 1991, when I was on this trip to Detroit, meeting all these people, I hooked up with Joe Hunter, obviously the the lead of the Funk Brothers, an absolute legend. He's on all the Pied Piper Detroit stuff, and you know worked a lot with Jack Ashford. Everybody knows his name. Yeah. He was a great guy, just a lovely, lovely guy, and. Amongst other things, Joe, Joe gave me all sorts of leads in Detroit because he knew everybody. And he said to me one day, he said, you need to go and see Casablanca. I said, who's Casablanca, Joe? And he said, Casablanca was Edwin Gates' distribution guy. He said, I'm sure he'll have records. I said, no problem, Joe, sounds good to me. So he gave me the details. I phoned Casablanca. Casablanca says, yeah, come round. So I went round. And uh, he points... It's, it's just typical, funny... Can, can I just ask you, are you hiring a car or moving around on, on the no, underground? No, I was or? in a car. Yeah, okay. it was hiring a car. Okay. So Casablanca's this typical, funny, old black guy who's been in the music business forever, you know, one-liners all over the place. Funny guy, you know, he's a good guy. So he points me to his backyard where there's this huge garage, run-down garage. So I, I go in there and there's just wall-to-wall -wall boxes and it's all rictic, nothing else. So I'm thinking of all the titles that, you know, are meaningful. You know, You're My Mellow, you know, Fantastic Four, Can't Stop Looking, etc., etc. What do I find after wading through, like, thousands of them? I only found 300 Alkents, all mint in 25-count boxes, and about 10 copies of the Fantastic Four live up to what she thinks, which was starting to get some interest then. And right at the bottom of an empty 25-count box, for some reason, there was two copies of the Fantastic Four, Can't Stop Looking For My Baby. And that was it. Pretty disappointing, really, <laughs> I've got to say. I, I reluctantly bought all the Alkents, because by then it was a dead, dead three-quid record. I mean, I didn't really know what I could do with them. But anyway, because I'd spent time there, I didn't want to disappoint Casablanca. I, I just bought them all. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't have any left now, so <laughs> they must have gone <laughs> over the years. But I do not know where. And I, I was saying to you off air, you know, I had that many. I was virtually, I could have tiled my roof with them. You know, there was, there was just, it was almost like I could have given a couple away with it at any other record I sold, you know. It's it, incredible, though, over the years, you know, people who've been to the States and, and even where those is in the UK, uh, every now and again, uh, you know, a 25, 50 or 100 count box, there's two records or three records yeah. on there that shouldn't be. Yeah. But <laughs> no. them are the ones that then you know That's it's right. your lucky day.
minutes after nine. If you just hooked in or if you've been listening all night, then it's Tim Ashley-Bendy in my special guest tonight and uh, a real history lesson for everybody tonight. Anybody who's got any knowledge or depth on this, on those soul, soul scene, you cannot match this stuff, I'll tell you. Um, but I'm sort of playing in the middle here and, and, and dropping, you know, the, the different sounds, not necessarily the 60s sounds that, that were very much a part of Blackpool Mecca when uh, Keith Mitchell and I went back there. Um, but, you know, all the different directions that we started to take. But um, we kicked off there with a record on Innovation 2, one of my favourite 70s labels. So many fantastic records and more, more records tonight even from that. I mean, that was like kind of 1975, but I came across, uh, obviously, somebody I know by Wales Wallace and uh, that, that for me. And, and at the time, I think Johnny Beggs was uh, riding with me. So, I mean, we both loved that um, it's a great record just that a fantastic yeah. record um, and then we moved on to an absolutely classy lady that had already been part of my life at the torch uh, and then remained part of my life and then I heard this uh, I got the vibes Josie Joe Armstead 1973 on Stacks Paul Reiser all the names are on there and then you just hear this and that gospel sound which has always affected me and still affects me now with house music and jazz um, I absolutely love it but you know a combination of uh, that stacks feel but just that mellow tone as well and uh, you, you know, what a story she is isn't she well <laughs> she was another person that I contacted in the probably the early 80s and uh, she was great she gave me she gave me Bobby Hutton's uh, details so I was then able to contact Bobby Hutton and I who's, didn't who's, who's live on Facebook every day. If you've got a yes. room in your house, Bobby would like to come and live here. And <laughs> I think he would 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 appreciate Stoke on Trent. Probably, but she she gave me an interesting little bit of information at the time. Uh, I, I suppose it's old old news now about the Salvadors because she said that uh, she she really didn't like what they did with Stick Barmy Baby. She says they sang out a tune, you know. <laughs> for us, it's an absolute classic and an anthem. <laughs> but musically, for her, she's very critical of it. But, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd, you know, any genre of soul music, I mean, it's got two sides, and particularly as the jazz funk thing evolved as well. A lot of the rawness of the records was what was made them successful. I mean, we can be highly critical of, say, the Tamangos, for instance, but who's yeah. produced that? Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. a mess that is. Yeah. But it absolutely isn't because it's, it, all those things that tweak the hairs on the back of our neck as working class boys in Silicon Trent who've got into, into soul music, those are the things, those are the bits that make those records stand out. Yeah, and I think with true. the Salvadors, you know, that kind of rawness was, was unique. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there is two sides to it. I mean, you know, conversations with Butch himself about, you know, how many sort of male vocals he played, how many of, of, of that more raw sound. Nowadays, he's more open to, uh, you know, the, the better produced stuff and the strings and all the rest of it. But I think for a long time, I remember him saying to me once in the house that, you know, don't you play a lot of female vocals? And I thought, well, yes. All right, somebody has to because you don't. <laughs> it's funny because when we used to go on record trips, you know, it, 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 I think we both acknowledge that I liked, you know, girly records, which, I mean, we, we, we shared some tastes, you know, in, in quite a lot of it, but there was some out-and-out -out girly records that I liked and, and Butch just didn't like, you know. Which, I, you know, I just put, down, put it down to different strokes for different folks, you know, but I always liked the, uh, the, the female stuff because it was 
very neo Motown, you know, sort of supreme oh, yeah, Martin the Vandellas, you know, which he's always uh, been dear, dear I, I, to my I think, heart. I think that was also became a balance on the dance floors. And I always used to say, no, no matter what kind of music you're playing, you need some women on the dance floor as well. And 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 I think women attract women as well with the vocals. I mean, going all the way back to to Tiffany's. I mean, my three oranges would come because I played Opal Stevens on the new. You know, I mean, that was that was it was worth every every play. I can tell you. Uh, just the orange juice I got, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that you've been hurting me. 
few texts by the sound of it and uh, the way that that one deck is playing up. So there may be a lot more talking, uh, which is no bad thing, and uh, working up one deck as we go forward. But we'll deal with those uh, as we played them. And we kicked off um, with a record that I know very little about, so you can fill me in, and that's um, Vicky Nelson's Stonyface. Yeah, Vicky Nelson's Stonyface was a wig and play. Again, probably a largely forgotten one. Uh, sounds okay still to my ears. There's also a version by Mary Love on Modern, and there's another version by Barbara and the Castles on Ruby Doo. Obviously, all of them are LA labels, so you know there's a connection. But basically, um, all all three records you just played, I've pulled them because they were all all Wigan plays, but also they're all written by uh, Chester Pipkin, two brothers, Chester and Gary Pipkin. Uh, out in LA, who I who I met in LA in 1991, met and interviewed them, and uh, those guys are something else because they um, they're behind so many good. They wrote so many good West Coast Northern records. So turn my bitter into sweet, Paris sleepless nights, Art Wheeler, that's how much I love you, you know, etc. etc. Really did have a great songwriting pedigree. And all arranged as well by H.B. Barnum. H.B. Barnum. Yeah. Now, the secrets is interesting. Again, it's a, it's a Chester and Gary Pipkin job, but uh, I always liked that, and that's that seems to be massively forgotten. Nobody ever talks about that, but I think, as I recall, both sides were played at Wigan. I feel a thrill coming on. Yep. The other side was played. Yeah. I now, feel the thrill coming on was, was, was also played um, by Keith. Uh, and nobody okay. but you was actually a, a big tune at the torch. I mean, that was a big all nighter tune. Nobody but you. Definitely. So presumably, when it's played at Wigan, it's being played as an oldie, then a reactivated oldie. I'm guessing. Yeah, certainly the wooden nickels. I mean, that yeah, that would, that was played in '72. Um, so I feel it's all coming on. Yeah, I, I, again, I'm not going to pretend that the secrets was a big record at which It wasn't, but the wooden nickel certainly was, and, and got plenty of plays. Here's a bit of interesting trivia. And, and this is a little gets a little bit confusing because apparently the personnel in the secrets and the wooden nickels included allegedly Brenda Holloway. Okay. Now Brenda Holloway was also supposed to be one of the personnel of the Bells. You know, I in don't, don't pretend. pretend. Yeah, yeah. Now <clears throat> I've, I've been wondering about that because she was with Motown from what sixty three to sixty eight, I think. However, she was the first artist that Motown signed to the West Coast Motown arm. But the, her recordings, I think, were still being done in Detroit. Okay. I know that because I think she left, she stormed out of one of them that was with Smokey Robinson. Uh, and I think that was the beginning of the end. That, that was sort of near 68. But the she was, so she was recording in Detroit, but based in LA. And I'm thinking to myself, was there some moonlighting going on there? Because obviously Chester and Gary were doing the writing. Yeah. They've got this fantastic Motown artist under there, under there in Mark Gordon's wing in, in, the, in the Motown office in L.A. Because that's the only way, because all those dates cross over. In other words, while she, the, the time frame for being at Motown, she was allegedly also in three different... Two different groups, the Secrets, the Wooden Nickels. No, three different groups, Secrets, Wooden Nickels and the Bells. Very interesting, to me anyway. No. Uh, <laughs> some, some, moonlight, some moonlighting going on there or some misinformation somewhere. I, th I, think, um, I think when uh, 
George Kerr came over and did, did, did the interviews live at Blackpool. I think I, he, he kind of highlighted the fact that, you know, a lot of guys used to moonlight just to make money. Yeah. And so would either go under a different name or, or, or their name wouldn't appear, as it doesn't appear no. uh, on, on some of the records. But uh, you, as, as you say, as time's gone on, as people like yourself and other people have dug and dug, I mean, some of this some of this information is okay. coming to the top. And, uh, you know, George Kerr named quite a few, you know, that, that were in that... Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of stories with Mike Terry as well. I mean, yeah. you know, d- doing different stuff. Um, sometimes your name's there, sometimes it isn't. I think what was happening there, if, if those things are correct, I think what was happening was they realised that, you know, the main office in Detroit wouldn't know if she did a little bit of midnight moonlighting here, there and everywhere, in, you know, as, as part of, you know, maybe even just backing singer with the bells or, you know, whoever. I don't suppose there's any way for anybody in Detroit to know that. Especially if you know Mark Gordon and uh, and the Pipkin brothers were were in charge of the West Coast office and keeping everything quiet. So yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I actually met, as I say, I met and interviewed both the Pipkin brothers. Nice guys. And Chester, at the point I met him, uh, was a had become a senior pastor, so he was a man of God, and he was running a Christian organization called Rejoice in Jesus which was like a college campus evangelistic, you know, outreach operation. So he'd kind of, you know, forsaken, you know, the evils of music for, uh, you know, for religion. But he was he was a good guy, nice guy. But, you know, I, I thought I was going to have a field day with those guys because they, they were so key to so much West Coast stuff. Neither of them had got any records. No. You know, so. It's amazing. Yeah, you, you, you move from one to the other. Everybody's yeah. got a different, a different viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, that's of course. Omen was um, part of A and M. By A and M. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, I mean, that, that's a major label holding on that. But um, very interesting stuff. Wooden nickels, as I say, all time for me. Doing what I do. Swinging all the styles. One hour thirty-five into this. Lots more music, lots more history. Shut 
I don't fully win on those in a minute, but we you know just go into chat room again. Um, you know, the Pipkins, the Pipkins. <laughs> which means something else completely <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> but the Pipkins, of course, uh, also wrote um, Bryce Cofield, ain't that right? Ain't that right? Like Keith yeah, that was the one I missed off. Yeah, favorite, favorite torch records. And when the torch closed and we we carried on at Tiffany's, I'm not saying it was ever a big record at Tiffany's, it it didn't kind of fit that environment, but then when we got Blackpool Mecca back and we took it there, then out it came along with um, End Up Love Enough and Lighten Up Baby, you know, just Baby Don't You Weep, which we mentioned earlier in the show. I mean, that whole set of records at that time was just phenomenal quality that lasted uh, the test of time. But we kicked in there again with... um, The Pipkins were friends with... Uh, Bryce Cofield was one of their one of their friends, and and I think Gary. I remember Gary giving me a number for Bryce Cofield, but I could never I could never reach him on it. 
But um, I'm, I'm surprised you could reach anybody back in those days when I think about phone calls to America uh, and even phone calls within America, but yeah. it was a bit more organised than the UK. Uh, we kicked off there with another last hour classic, which was Water and Power, um, which is a subsidiary of Honey. Of course, it was Fantasy Records and Honey was the subsidiary. Uh, but of course, all, all sorts of people were starting to turn up on Fantasy and there's some great albums at this time. If you haven't already got the Water and Power album, then you need to go and buy it because there's, there's two other great singles that never became singles on there but uh, absolutely fantastic album fantastic group um, as were Spiders Web as were Pleasure you know lots of groups I mean you listen to Pleasure and you know I Need Your Girl which became a mecha classic and yet they're a funk band they did other stuff as well uh, and even jazz I mean incredible band I mean this was the period of record companies backing some incredible bands uh, we then moved on with Joe Anderson um, and uh, you know not the guy of, of Thunderbirds but Joe Anderson uh, on Buddha Records and, and Buddha along with Epic along with RCA as has been proven this particular period between sort of 74, 75, 76 prolific amount of black music was flying out and that is an absolutely brilliant track which was done again later by Ed Summers uh, I can tell which I, I think there's a probably a five or six year gap between those two um, same backing track uh, different vocals and then we're back to my favourite label again from the 70s or certainly one of my favourite labels and brilliant vocals by of course the one and only Barbara Hall and you brought it on yourself written by Sam D's Sam D's yeah. there you go um, and the other side of course which is absolute killer drop my heart off at the door again an absolute Sam D's classic mm, yeah um, great double side the 70s and, and you know the, the difference between you know what happened at Wigan and and you know, I mean, these kind of records could never have been played at the Torch either. I mean, it, it, it was about, it became about environments, venues, audience. And uh, I remember people used to say to me, you know, people won't come if you don't play rare records, play new releases. People won't, people did come. People did enjoy yeah. it. And now some of those records in a section and, you know, so many 70s records now are sought after. Even things like the Tremaines, which is like 800 quid on RCA, you know, I mean, uh, but, you, you, you know, all these big labels... Um, definitely at that time were paying the dues right through to the early 80s I mean when, when major uh, major executives like Larkin Arnold were getting to the top of um, companies like Arista and being able to control you know what was coming out and the artists who, who were you know black artists and black groups never had a better time and as we said off air not everybody got paid unfortunately but no. uh, that that was another story uh, any input on any of them I mean do, do, are, are they records that you ever bothered to buy yeah I've got, got Barbara Hall yeah absolutely fantastic and Innovation 2 will remain for me one of the best 70s labels well and the, yeah the, the Wales Wallace that you played just fantastic just killer yeah um, I love and it. that's somebody I know on BRC and what was the other one that me and Johnny Beggs used to go on about uh, Willie Hobbs till I get it right till I get it right yeah another fantastic record we continue.
Classic Northern Soul and three choices from Tim Ashibandi again. Uh, we'll get the fill-ins on that. But we kicked off there with the record on RCA that I know nothing about at all. Uh, Black and Wood, which you say was featured quite a lot at the local Tiffany's, but that's... Uh, it, yeah, it, and it was played time. a lot. Yeah, and I, I, I'm struggling to remember who, who by. But it was certainly played at Wigan. Totally forgotten. Actually, they've done another one on RCA called Backup which is a really interesting and nice kind of... I, don't, I wouldn't know how to describe it, but it's very good, but totally different than that in style. Yeah. Um, and then and then a record that, I, yeah, I did own, and in fact was uh, chased by uh, Mr. Simon Susan to sell it to him. Um, Lydia Marcel, and It's Not Like You, which came a little bit a part of uh, the last hour at the time, but never really, I can't... You know, the vocal on it for me was... It was a bit lightweight. Yeah, a bit take yeah. it or leave it, yeah. 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 Well, it, you know, it had its it had its moment at, at Wigan, and it was one of those that Simon Susan did boot in the end. You know, I think from memory, it was on, he booted it on red red vinyl, if I remember. But yeah, Simon, he's totally forgotten. There's the only other thing on the label of note, as far as I know, to 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 us northern people is um, Danny Owens can't be a fool for you, which which was played later, okay. uh, which was a good record, but. Yeah, there was a lot of interest in Lydia Marcel at the time. Um, totally, yeah, it's gone off the radar now. And then we're on to Up Down Records, of course, um, uh, the home of Gloria Jones and uh, Baby I Need You, which is very much in that vein, very much yeah. in that Motown. Very Motownish. Uh, and, 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 uh, and very huge at Wigan, I would imagine. It was a very big record. Uh, and as I said to you off air, interestingly now, it doesn't seem to get played much but the other side I think is it would really work now it's a nice mid-tempo record and more usable than Baby I Need You but I always liked Baby I Need You and I said to you I love that bit where she says I'll buy you a solid gold car <laughs> not many of those kind of girls in Stoke Colin uh, no must, no. I don't know if you ever uh, ran across any no I'm afraid I haven't <laughs> run across any that's why I married a girl from Liverpool there you go there you go no gold cars Yeah, bro. I heard some bad talk about you in the neighborhood today. What's here, bro? I heard your woman say you're a dirty dude. In fact, she and some other chicks were saying that you don't want it. Dead or alive. Distinguishing features. You got cold and shifty eyes. He'll lead you on with his words of something sweet. He'll rob you of your prize. He sweeps you off of your feet. He'll wind and down you, but you're the one who Cause you'll never see him when he makes his getaway So beware the strange, beware the strange Looking into your town, tall, dark and handsome Beware cause your heartbreak bound Girls, he's a wanted, dead or alive Distinguishing features, he's got cold and shifty eyes He's sweet and loving, but he'll steal your breath away He's a tricky character, like an actor in a play Embezzlement and murder of his crimes are just a fear He'll steal your heart and he'll kill the love that you do So beware the strange, beware the strange Looking in your town, tall, dark and handsome Beware cause your heartbreak down Girls, he's a wanted, dead or alive Distinguishing features, he's got cold and shifty eyes Oh 
Working in your town Tall, dark, and handsome Be wet cause your heart breaks
2214, he was Colin Curtis and my very special guest, Mr. Tim Bendy, talking history and talking a lot about the music that was featured uh, in both the clubs, particularly Wigan and Blackpool. And um, we kicked off there with uh, a record that, when I first heard this, I knew this was going to be a Colin Curtis record. And so uh, the Hypnotics Beware of a Stranger, and of course, then I would play Wanted Dead or Alive straight after it. <laughs> Five Voices of East Harlem. Um, and again, The Voices of East Harlem was, was an album that came from a trip to John Anderson's and, uh, you know, Cashing In was originally played by us off, off the album. Um, and then, obviously, The Seven Inch came to light. Um, and then we moved on with, again, another favourite of mine from the modern rooms as well, but played by myself as a new release, and uh, Blood Hollins, uh, How Have You Been? Incredible vocals on that by Gene Lang as well. I mean, that... And, and Vince Montana is on there. I mean, that that is just a fantastic piece of music and written by Blood Hollins, uh, slightly out of context for what he was doing. It, it was... you. Know, also an experimentalist with uh, with his albums on uh, on RCA, uh, and then we moved on to a record we both agree was absolutely fantastic, written, sung, and smashed to pieces by the fantastic Jesse Simmons. Simmons. Yeah, and again that album and and, and the original record came from uh, Soulbolt from a trip down to John. Uh, the album, of course, is on my own and definitely worth picking up. Some more great tracks on that, and then finishing up back in Miami. I mean, I was already. You know, because of Party Down, I mean, Willie, you know, Little Beaver was just right up my street. And, you know, because we'd listened to so much music after Levine's trips to Miami and, and a lot of the stuff that had come through Henry Stone, you know, your cats, all all those labels with, uh, you know, Latimore and you know, all that uh, weird and wonderful stuff that came out of Miami and uh, listened to My Heartbeat, which was written by Milton Wright. Yeah. Absolutely blinding. Again, uh, the two or three albums he did at this at this period, um, I featured tracks off as well. But that is absolute standout. Willie, Willie Beaver Hale, of course, uh, Little Beaver, and Listen to My Heart. I love that record. Yeah, I've got that. Nice record. I think uh, you know the the Bessie Simmons and and the Little Beavers, uh, you know, very much uh, more of a crossover than say. I mean, Hypnotics was that played at Wigan much? It was played. It was played. It was yeah. Played, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but I, again, I, I loved that that other side of it, which was taking on board, the, you know, the Curtis Mayfield, the Leo Hudson sound, um, that started to evolve very nicely at Wigan. Twenty-two seventeen. Do you want to add any stories before we move on with your next three? Um, I, I can, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the story for these three actually in advance. That, that might work. Okay. Um, I've pulled these three out because they were all played at Wigan, and one of them is actually getting absolutely hammered uh, currently which is the Richie Adams. I almost didn't want to bring it because, you know, people can hear it every weekend all over the country, but it just fits the story. Basically, there's three records here. Richie Adams, I Can't Escape From You on Congress. Harry Starr, Another Time, Another Place on End. And Jane, Janie Grant, um... Hey, Colin, I lost yeah. you then a second. Yeah, you, you did, because I pulled my thing out. <laughs> you, you were still there. So you, you were saying, you, yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm up to, to yeah. this one. To yeah, sorry, and J Janie one. Grant, My Heart, Your yeah. Heart. Yeah. All played at Wigan, innit? and I would say Janie Grant was a pretty big record. Richie Adams, yeah. Uh, Harry Starr, less so. But they were all played. But anyway, the point of my story is, and the other reason I pulled them, they all share the same publishing company. Okay. Very quick story behind this. Some point in the late 80s, early 90s, 
I was in touch with, I was corresponding with Richie Adams. And of course, I was asking him about vinyl. And Richie Adams said to me, contact the publishing company. So the next time I was out on the East Coast, I, 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 I telephoned uh, We Three Publishing. They were right bang smack in the middle of New York. And I said, you know, I've been, uh, I've been advised to call you by Richie Adams. Oh, yeah, yeah, Richie, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they said, how can we help you? And I said, well, I'm looking for some titles. And they said, what are the titles? And I said, they're all with We Three. They're all with your publishing company. And I told them what they were. And they said, and they said are you looking to buy the actual records? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, we might have some file copies. I said, great. And, and they said, give us an hour, call us back, and, uh, and we'll see what we can do. So I mooched about, you know, New York for, <laughs> for an hour, called them back, and they said, yeah, yeah, we've got, I think it was... I think it was five file copies of each. Richie Adams, Harry Starr, and Janie Grant. All mint. Wow. I, think, I think they were $5 each or something crazy. Wow, just, wow, just, wow. A, just a call from it. A tip from <laughs> Richie Adams. It was great, you know. It was, it was so easy. No fight, no battle, no hassle. Just like, yeah. So you just went along and picked them up? And I just them went to the, the publishing company office, yeah, wherever it was, Manhattan or whatever, and just physically picked them up, yeah. That was it. <laughs> And there would have been more copies if... It no, they were selling me what they had, because, right, you know, okay. that, at that point, which is probably, I think, I think it was 1990, at that point, they got no further use for anything that was 1966, you know. But, but, but you are right about Richie Adams, because, I mean, obviously I'm still playing Northern gigs, and I'm still in gigs where there's a Northern room, and certainly this last 12 months, that's really come back into focus. It gets so, so many people yeah. playing it. Yeah. Um, again, not a record I can take any credit for whatsoever, but we'll start off with that and a brilliant story.
again, again, we're talking about my heart, your heart, which again was pushed very heavily by uh, by Keith and also by uh, Ian Levine. Not particularly for me, but um, absolutely huge record. I would imagine it's a huge record at Wigan, yeah. It was, and it sounded great at Wigan. Uh, written by Richie Adams, I think, from memory, isn't it, Colin? No, no. Is it? Somebody Berghoff, isn't it? Isn't it produced by him or arranged by him? It is indeed there arranged and conducted yeah. by Richie Adams. Because the cleverness about what Tim's doing tonight, uh, and uh, you know, those people who are a bit cleverer will understand, that he's tying these threes of records and being very clever. Uh, Jerry Ragaboy and Richie Adams, of course, uh, on yeah. the uh, I Can't Escape From You, which is a fantastic uh, Northern Soul record. It is, isn't All it? Yeah. Albeit... Underplayed, Over, uh, overplayed, hammered, <laughs> overplayed, death, underplayed yeah. by me, overplayed by everybody else. Yeah, uh, and then Harry Starr on on the Lenny Curtis label end uh, with another time, another place. I think the backing on that is great, but I think what we said off air probably still stands. Middle of the road, give it to Lenny Curtis. Yeah, they should have done. And let him see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We go back towards Blackpool Mecca. We're at twenty-two thirty coming up. Uh, about 30 seconds away and uh, so 90 minutes left uh, still plenty to get through and uh, back in the Highland Room
time tonight for Mr. Wales Wallace with an incredible track on BLC Records called Somebody I Know which became an absolute anthem again at Blackpool Mecca, written of course by Mr. Eugene Record um, before that, and we kicked off with the, as I say, keep, keep on sticking these label stuff in, uh, but fantastic label for me, and that was of course uh, bet you if you check it out, the Quadraphonics which are a favourite for you as well too. yeah I like that, but the um, you know, we'd, we'd already broken uh, bet you if you ask around by Velvet on Perception, um, which is a, a much weaker production, but it became a very popular record uh, along strangely with stuff like Fiddling Around <laughs> which was a, a, a very odd record, but um, and Cream of the Crop, all that stuff but this particular uh, bet you if you check it out for me just anthemic record and uh, Levine used to do tapes off WBLS radio and uh, you're listening to Billy Callington Kirkland play that and describe the sunshine and what was happening outside the window just great memories of the 1970s for me and uh, great memories of soul music and uh, the game is over was the other one which was Brown Sugar um, mm. which was another favourite again as a brand new release and uh, what became very lucky for me at Blackpool at that time is I got so many sources of new releases and, and the quality when you look back at that period now sort of late 73 to about 78 I know there was stuff in 79 and 80 but in a different way a different sound and uh, you know definitely during that period the major labels and independents combined to make some fantastic music so first off we're going to play your next record which is The Showstoppers tell a little bit about that yeah, the Showstoppers was a, a record that it, it was never well. As far as I know, it was never officially released. As my understanding is that it should have been. It should have come out as Showtime One O Two. You know, when Ain't Nothing But a House Party was yep. getting released on Showtime. This this should have been Showtime One O Two, and for whatever reason, they shelved it and never put it out 
Although I have heard rumours that there 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 might be a vinyl copy or two that sneaked out. I, I have no idea. I've never seen one. I don't know anybody with it. Anyway, all that aside, uh, Neil Rushton obviously talked t- at some point to the uh, you know the owners of that material. Obviously got the um, full the perfection stuff and, yeah. and the masters yeah. and all the rest of it. And then discovered this unreleased, previously unreleased track and put it out on his Inferno label. So, as far as I'm aware, this is the only way you can have that record on vinyl. But it was, you know, Neil put it out, he was played at Wigan. For me, it's just a really classy record. Again, you never hear anybody talk about it. No, uh, but Showstoppers, uh, House Party, of course, along with Bobby Wells, along with Sly and the Family Stone, Dance to the Music. 1968 was such a pivotal year. I mean, would this have been recorded back then, do you think? 68, 69? I'm assuming it was the same same era, yeah. Uh, Particularly if it was going to come out so quickly on uh, on Showtime. So we kick off with this and more from Tim after these and more information, no doubt, so get your pens out.
2049, and we uh, now can uh, well, welcome Keith Beardmore to uh, the earpiece. Well done, Keith. You've been out and I hope you haven't had too many drinks because we've still got just over an hour to go. Um, kicked off with the Showstoppers, which, as you say, came out on Neil Rushton's Inferno Records. He put that out in 1979. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, and I, I think, yeah, on, on the other side, of course, you've got the uh, Inferno Orchestra instrumental, but I'm not strong enough. Yeah. If I remember rightly, the 12 with got to get close on was on the other side of ain't nothing but a house party on the 12 on Inferno um, but great record maybe advice to Neil would be to re-put that out on an American <laughs> yeah American well of course you know the reason you don't hear it is because of the snobbery about it being on Inferno and not on any US release so of course yeah. you know the scene is completely deprived of that great record and has been pretty much since they stopped playing yeah, at Wigan and, but and, yeah, I love and, Ethan and, and, I think and yeah, he yeah, some respect put that out all, all that time ago um, yeah. then we went on to an absolute piece of class and we also uh, we mentioned off air the enticers on this label but Othello Robertson and So In Love absolute class total class fantastic record that's been airbrushed out of history largely because um anybody's interest in the Baby Love label doesn't extend much beyond the Enticers, which in itself a fantastic record it also. a fantastic record. But, but, but you know, well, I mean, that, Robertson that, that is, is right just, up there, the piece of question, it's not yeah. even two minutes long. It's, it's great, and it came out on ERA as well. Uh, right. But, you know, Baby Love looks nice, doesn't it? Let's be honest. It do, no, 100%. Um, and then we finish off with a record that is... Yeah, I have no knowledge of whatsoever. Florence DeVore. Phil Spector label, and, uh, yeah. Kiss Me Now, yeah. The great record, Wigan record, personal favourite. Uh, Sharon, are you listening? I know she will be. She'll, <laughs> she'll have picked up on that one. Yeah, just a brilliant record. Yeah. Um, was, 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 was that a Wigan it. play? Or was that oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who would have first brought that to the turntables at that time? I seem to remember some of the London guys found that uh, you know Mick Smith what, the, maybe oh, the apocalypse riders somebody, the four horsemen from the somebody apocalypse somebody like Mick yeah, Smith yeah, yeah or, or one of those or guys or yeah, Dave Burton yeah. or, uh, I think so yeah, yeah. Dave Rivers, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they unearthed a lot of records. I mean, a lot of them, of course, coming out of Moondog Records in uh, in London back in those days. Um, you know, well, they kicked off. I mean, the first time I knew of them was the Torch, um, and then it continued with the Mecca supplying with Keith, myself, being the Bean. Uh, yeah, with some fantastic records and some fantastic finds. We're going back to the seventies, Keith. So uh, take your slippers off, put your pumps on. It's twenty two fifty two. On the hit mix. Whenever I feel you touch 
it's been as a dream. There's gotta be a way, some way to make you feel the way I feel. It's too much to ask for you to make me laugh and make me smile. Just to make me yours for a little while. To hold me close and to hold me tight. Please, hold me over. Over for the night.
two more 70s labels and two more great labels, of course, Vega and Jamiga Records, but we kicked off there with Street People. Uh, again, Street People, Rhythm Makers, I mean, just, just buy the albums. I mean, absolutely unbelievable song music from the 70s. Uh, and, of course, Never Get Enough Your Love was written by Ray DeRouge, who wrote The Anderson Brothers mm-hmm. and uh, did his own version of it, and uh, which, yeah, wasn't quite on the money, um, but definitely... Name it and claim it. Was another one. The, yeah, the, the, there's another yeah. name on here that used to crop up on a lot of records that I played and a lot of records that I've got respect for uh, Mr. Bert DeQuato himself and uh, he's another guy I met did you? Bert DeQuato yeah and have, you, have you got have you got a taped interview with him? Have somewhere you got, yeah I, I, I met him uh, I met him in his home in uh, New Jersey yeah you are kidding me yeah. Well, uh, yes, we need. We, you need to write a book now, and I think well, I'm going to make. After you. Uh, yeah, no, at the same time, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about speeding that process up. Um, we then went on to the Boogeyman Orchestra, and I'll play that for Suzanne Pacenti, who got engaged recently. Congratulations. Congratulations, Suzanne. And um, this she used to drive me mad for, and still does drive us mad for, uh, featuring Phil Hayes and the Boogeyman Orchestra. Lady, lady, lady. Another one of those records we just set up there. I mean, where. Uh, you know, this is, applies to Duke Brown or it applies to Exodus Trek. When they were first played, instrumentals were very much in vogue. And to break this record, yeah, the instrumental was played at Blackpool Mecca. And then uh, when we flipped it over to the vocal, it became even more popular. It just, it just kind of fits, doesn't it? It just kind yeah. of fits. Uh, it's got that that same essence that records like Detroit Executives had cool off. Where it's just got that that coolness about it. Uh, and then uh, fantastic group. Um, of course, Rich Tufo production and uh, absolutely brilliant label as well, Jamigo. And uh, like cross between, you know, the Hudson Mayfield sound and and a little bit more of a kick. But Notations, brilliant band, and the track there. Can't think before you stop. We got more. Uh, we've got fifty six minutes to go. Have you got anything else to say, Mister Ashibendi? Talk about this first one we've got on the deck. Yeah, I thought I'd um, play uh, two or three records that were big or made big by uh, Russwin Stanley. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that is I was a little bit disappointed that uh, he didn't feature in the Wigan uh, 50th anniversary. I don't know what the uh, politics are behind that. Presumably there is some. Uh, but uh, I lost you sat in that, Colin. Yeah, I, I keep pressing buttons. <laughs> it's still going out there. Don't you worry about yeah. it. I'm listening. Um, yeah, I just felt that you know he started the whole thing off at Wigan. Uh, he went on then to employ the DJs that you know that ended up DJing there. Well, building Rusty, careers. Rusty's every sound, and uh, also uh, of course Cab Roberts was at early doors in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just feel that sometimes, again, he's 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 airbrushed out of it all, as though as though he he's kind of, you know, he, he's not significant. And to me, he needs to be significant. He's part of that history of that great club. And I just think, you know, all the politics aside, whatever they are, and I'm not that interested in them to be honest. I just think a little bit more recognition here and there for some of the great records that he played. And this is one of them, you know, it's uh, the Adlibs New York in the Dark. And this was a song, as far as I understand, about the blackout that occurred in 1965 that basically took out electric power across about nine states all down the eastern seaboard, as far as I understand. Wow. 
And <laughs> it was you, quite you, interesting. You can Wikipedia that now and actually bedtime reading. Honestly, it was quite interesting when I, when I looked into it because I was curious about what he was singing about and apparently it affected about 30 million people. Wow. And as well as that, there, I think there was... I think there was 800,000 people who were stranded in New York subway tunnels in total darkness. But anyway, that's what the Adlers were singing about. I just find it interesting that a group could make a great song about something as mundane as as a city blackout.
Records and Choices from Timothy Bandy and apologies for anybody who overheard me getting overexcited there with the microphone still up uh, about Duke Browner. Uh, <laughs> used a few words that uh, were nothing to do with chickens at all. Um, anyway, we kicked off there with a record uh, you, you've given full credit to, Mr. Russell and Stanley. Uh, New York in the Dark by the Adlibs, fantastic group uh, and a very nice record. And um, again, something that ties in the history of something that actually happened so you can you can read up about that so then we're on to Dina Barnes and uh, between us we're not going to we can't quite uh, perceive where it came from but I know as a Blackpool Mecca record that was absolutely perfect and, and one that Keith and I played when we first went back there as as the things have kind of changed um, you know, after the torch I mean the torch was very adrenaline driven for those 13 months of the all nighters and then you had this period where we were locally here in Stoke at Tiffany's and also the beginning of, of things happening in the top ranking haven't we and they were both different spaces than, than Wigan so I think you know the, we started to see different types of records getting played I think when me and Keith got off of the job back there I mean Dina Barnes certainly uh, fitted the bill absolutely perfectly in absolute class and of course as I was uh, swearing in the background there about Mr Duke Browner I've got a little bit of a story about yeah. Dina Barnes um, in terms of <clears throat> tracking people down and meeting them and so on I think for me Dina Barnes is the one I'm most I'm most proud of and I, and I hold most dear to my heart the memory of it because Tracking it down in itself was difficult and uh, I had a little bit of luck with it in the end because I got details of the publishing company for that record and an address for it in Detroit. I didn't know what I was going to find there. Anyway, cut a long story short, ended up there at this address, which was in a bad neighbourhood. It was a suburb of, of Detroit. And there was, you know, gangs of... Deal dealers or whatever on corners. It was, the, it was that typical scene, you know. And they weren't record dealers. <laughs> they weren't record dealers. It all looked a bit dodgy. And it had been a difficult address to find because the way the, st the street was configured, it wasn't straightforward. It was really complicated. Anyway, pitched up at this door, knocked on the door, and a girl answered, black girl answered, and, and I, said, I, I said, look, this is who I am, and this is why I'm here. And I showed her a photograph a photocopy of that label for Dina Barnes. And I said, I've been, BMI have this address as the publishing company address. I said, for this record, do you know anything about this record, this artist? And she said, hey, that's Gardenia. And I said, you know this person? She said, yeah, it's Gardenia. I said, is that? She says, yeah, Dina Barnes, that's Gardenia. I was like, Wow. So she said, come in. I was with my girlfriend, Jackie, Jackie Kavner. We went in and they were really friendly and it was basically, I think, two or three daughters and they were the daughters of a guy called T.J. Fowler who was a Detroit producer and he was the owner of the Puff label. Okay. Or co-owner of the Puff label. Yeah, yeah. And he'd, he'd featured on other northern things that are of interest to, to us a lot, you know, things like the Brooks Brothers uh, looking for a woman on Tay and, and, and lots of other stuff. So that part of the story was familiar to me anyway, even before I got there. Anyway, we sat down and basically said, can you put us in touch with Gardenia? And they said, the girl said, we'll try. So they called the number at Gardenia's home and got the daughter who said, she's at the wake of a, of a 
funeral of a friend yeah. who's died. So the T.J. Fowler's daughter explained, looking at some people from England, you know, they, 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 they want to speak to Gardini, you know, they've come all this way. You know, really, she, 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 did, she did well on our, our behalf. Anyway, so the daughter said, I'll, I'll contact my mum and, and see what she said. So the, she, she did that, came back to us a, about five minutes later and said, yeah, you know, she'd love to see you. So then... The T.J. Fowler's daughters directed us a little bit further into the neighbourhood to the address where the wake was taking place. Again, that was dodgy. That that was a dodgy place. So, and they actually sh- half chaperoned us down the street. You know, that's how dodgy it was. Sort of kept an eye on us. Anyway, so we pitched up at this address, knocked on the door, and uh, a black lady answered, and... Uh, she said, are, are you you the people from England? And I said, yeah. And she said, please come in. And there was about five black women sitting around a table. And I said, um, which one's Gardenia? And one of the ladies said, it's me. And that was the introduction. And I cut a very long story short. We sat with those, the, with, with Gardenia and, and her friends for about an hour and a half. <clears throat> And it was absolutely phenomenal. It was exactly what you'd want it to be. In that, you know, sometimes you you track people down and you interview them and, and they're very dismissive and they're not interested. She was all over it, you know, and she basically said, she said, words I'll never forget. She said, you've not only made my day, you've made my life coming to find me and telling me that she didn't know anything. I was telling her about all this interest in this record, how it was an anthem, how it was how Everybody on our scene knew that record, could sing along to. She couldn't believe it. She didn't know anything about it. And it was funny because the friends she was with were interjecting and basically telling us other bits and pieces. So they were saying that Who Am I was actually the side that was played on local Detroit radio, not yeah, yeah. if you ever walked yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, again, cut a long story short, I interviewed her and she was telling me all sorts of bits and pieces about the record. She knew Duke Browner, obviously, and was telling me things about Duke Browner. I think at that point he was working for an insurance company. Um, she gave me a number for him, but I, but I could never get, get to talk to him. Um, she gave me the number of another guy in the same neighbourhood who she said had, had co-written songs with her. I went to see him later. That's another story again. But um, what I said to her was, I said, this record, this, I said, these songs are... Ve- they're very emotional. They feel very emotional. Uh, I think that's what people feel when they hear them. I said, I certainly do. And I said, can you say anything about that? And she said, oh, yeah. She said, that's not an accident. She said, I was singing about something in my life, something that happened to me. Basically, somebody she, yeah, she yeah, loved yeah. and it yeah. had gone wrong. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you've got so much emotion in both those two songs. Anyway, it was absolutely amazing. And we kept in touch after that. We corresponded. We spoke on the f- phone quite a few times and I was actually trying very hard to get her over here to one of the, you know, yeah, you know, one of 80s things or, or whatever. And it, and it never happened because she experienced poor health. But, and she's long, she's, she's since passed away. But that, that was, that was just fantastic for me. Again, you're extremely unique and uh, yeah. you know, extremely poignant moment for yourself. And I think I'm the only person the interested in this music who's ever met her, as far as I know. And wow. I was certainly the first person to meet her. 
And of course, Duke Brown and that particular label, I mean, uh, you know, echoes uh, what Detroit was all about. And um, whenever I see that Z- ZTSC uh, stamp and whenever I see the, oh, yeah. you know, the letters, you get excited. I always think of uh, <laughs> Bob Foster, who was one of the biggest collectors in the early days in Landudno. And I went over to see his, his collection of j- just ZTSC titles. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, Bob, you know, a legendary collector uh, back in the day. And like me, preferred his hair long, you know, like you, like you. <laughs> uh, but I'm also going to uh, mention that uh, we're looking for your prayers for local guy, local guys, in fact, Neil Allen and uh, Bob Morris at the moment, who are both going through yes. uh, a tough period. Um, and we completed those three records with uh, the OJs. Island OJs. Music, yeah, which, well, which, again, another Russ spin. And, uh, and, it, and an international record that tied together what was happening at the at the Manchester Ritz and what happened at all the major all days and so endorsed again by the fact it got the place through Russ at Wigan Yeah, it's, it's interesting isn't it because you know, one of the criticisms levelled against Wigan was always that, oh yeah, you know I stopped going because it's it, it just too much pop and this, that and the other and you think, well wait a minute there was such a diversity of records played there, you know, from things like, you know, like OJ's I Love Music right through to things that were yeah complete white pop but certainly you know enough diversity to keep most most people interested and and, and I think you know again um, you know that combination was definitely working because I mean at times I mean at, at peak times I mean Wigan was, was, was solidly full with what must have been heading towards 1500 to 1600 people I think the capacity was 2000 in total wasn't wow, it? Wow, and, wow. and on certainly on the oldies nights it felt like there was at least that in yeah, really yeah, did yeah, yeah. And, and the oldies nights were what on a Friday yeah they were on uh, once Mon- a month monthly yeah yeah, yeah. I think and, it might have been so the first Friday that, of the that month. That would or bring something. people up for, for the Friday who would then stay for the Saturday as well. I always did. I always went to both. But I, th- I think my understanding is of what happened, and, and you could tell this by the Saturday night that was straight after the oldies. That was usually, I wouldn't say a dead night, but it was usually a very quiet night. Yeah. All the buzz had been the night before. You know, all the sweat and all the mayhem and everything else had been on the Friday night. So it seemed to me there were a lot of people who you know, whatever else they did for the rest of the month certainly came up on the Friday night and weren't necessarily there on the on the following Saturday, the day after. Yeah. Because that's a heavy weekend, you know, because, I mean, the, those Friday nights were hectic. And, and well, that kind of reflects a lot of weekend events and, and stuff now. People come in and burn themselves out on the Friday night, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even if they booked in for the whole weekend, they can't actually manage it. We continue, 23, 26, you with Tim Ashley Bendy and myself, Colin Curtis, and you're very welcome.
You offered me was so involved. 
workers together from an absolutely superb talent. Diane Jenkins on Creative Punk Records and of course I Need You and then Toe Away Zone and uh, big favourite of yours that Tim. That I love Toe Away Zone, yeah. I play, play quite a lot. Again, time. the lyrics and the story, absolutely brilliant. Front end of those four records, the first two uh, showing you Motown records that weren't actually on Motown, but Betty Baker or the Heartstoppers, whichever version you want to go at, uh, marching up the street. <laughs> 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 Absolutely huge, huge record back in the day at Blackpool Mecca. And and then the Heartstoppers turned up as well. Marching Out of Your Life, Betty Baker, of course. And uh, Heartstoppers are a single on all platinum, so it's probably in Steve Gunnari's new book. Another reason to buy that. And then um, a record, that I think in terms of record collecting, this is one that caught a lot of people out. Johnny Ross came out on Chirrup, and it was another version, a very kicking version, um, that probably went off the boil and then as resurfaced as, as uh, time's gone by but uh, brilliant version of uh, I Can't Help Myself which just absolutely slams mm. the dance floor yeah I always liked it um, you're brilliant but but now rare <laughs> it turned out to be yeah seemingly yeah so we're on 2339 we've got about 20 minutes so tell us a little bit about the first record we're going to play in the next three Tim yeah I mean in of fact, course we'll play four so you'll, I'll need another okay I mean of, of course uh, Wigan featured a whole host of DJs in it, including yourself, obviously. Once. Um, Soul Sam, uh, John Vincent, you know, Brian Ray, Pep. blah, 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 Pep, yeah, you name it. Alan and Rhodes. Alan Rhodes. And yeah. I thought I'd pull out, uh, I'd play a record or two from, from, from different DJs other than the usual, you know, Richard, Russ and so on. So I've got one for Alan Rhodes here, one from Keith, and one from Sam. The first is... The one from Sam, which is, uh, I think he had it covered up as the epitome of sound, which I never quite understood really. But it's, um, it's Carol and Jerry, How Can I Ever Find a Way? And um, it worked quite well. I, I mean, I like the record. Strangely enough, there seems to be a version of this by a white group called The Fifth Estate. And it, it, it's on a CD, exactly the same, uh, certainly the same backing. So I don't know what the story is with that. But anyway, this is Carol and Jerry on MGM and how can I ever find a way?
Well, what these records, some of these records are shorter than you think. You don't have time to chat to them in between <laughs> time. But um, four records there that we played together, and we kicked off with one that you said uh, attributed to Soul Sam, originally covered up as the epitome of sound. Yeah. A little bit strange, I agree with that. Strange because they are females and epitome of <laughs> sound are male. But anyway, details Carol aside. Carol and Jerry, how can I ever find a way that's on MGM? Yeah. Uh, then we moved on with uh, Detroit Classic again, Parliaments, George Clinton, Sydney Barnes at their very, very best, Heart Trouble. Keith. And it, yeah. Shout Keith Minchelite for that one, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And Keith, yes, I, I have read your message and uh, I am aware of uh, both those situations. Yeah, in fact, somebody's keeping me very up to date with Neil. Um, but yes, um, thoughts and prayers out for uh, Neil and for Bob Morris. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we went on with uh, a record you attribute to Alan Rhodes, is it? Alan Rhodes' Bread and Water, Mike Finnegan. I've always had a lot of faith in this record. I've always loved it, and uh, credit to Alan Rhodes for playing it at Wigan. Um, I don't know if it made much of an impact, but I certainly always liked it. And uh, I do play it out, and I think that's a record that's got some miles in it, yeah. I really do. Interestingly, I think, if I've got this right, I think Kelly Finnegan, who's recently putting out products on the coal mine label is Mike Finnegan's son I think okay. so yeah bit of trivia yeah and <laughs> uh, we finished off there with Diane Newby Diane Newby yeah another on cap. another Alan Rhodes spin um, Diane Newby did a version of um, Everything's Wrong as well the Chubby Checker which is also not bad Diane Newby is the Newby in Newby and Johnson wow. sweet happiness wow that's the person yeah this is the place to come. Tim, thank you very much indeed. Four hours have flown by. I've got two or three records to play on the Mecca side to finish us off. Um, this will be available, well, always getting near Christmas now, but hopefully I'll I'll have this ready on Sunday and try and get it up on Christmas Eve. If not, it'll, it'll go up early, early morning on Christmas Day. Uh, but thanks for coming in again tonight. An thank absolute you. wealth of knowledge. Uh, you're now going to drive me to, to find a source for you to get this book out because, <laughs> you know, but I, I, seriously, what, what, what you've got, the information that you've got, the information that you've collated, the passion that you did it with, and, and you know, it would be a shame not to document it and, and get it out there, because I, I know you used to do brilliant fanzines and all the rest of it, but you've kept the letters, you've kept everything that's associated with these meetings, and your own recall of the meetings, particularly poignant is the Dina Barnes, um, but all those things you reeled off earlier on, people could only dream of that. And to be able to work that out and set it up, I, I definitely, you, you've you added a new mission to my life tonight, which is absolutely brilliant. Anyway, three more from me. Uh, if you've been listening live, then I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, again, apologies for the swearing. I don't normally swear. Anybody who knows me knows that. Well, not much anyway. And then... Um, I'm back in here on Sunday, Christmas Eve with Jazz Dance and Fusion. Uh, that'll be the usual two until five o'clock. So uh, once you finish your shopping, you can sit down and have a drink and do some jazz dancing with me. Uh, I'll catch you next time. Specials next year include um, all sorts of people. All sorts of people. I'm going to be putting that list up probably on New Year's Day because it's going to be a very interesting year next year. I know we're going to have Tim back as well. So... Uh, have a fantastic week, have a fantastic Christmas from both Tim and myself. Yeah, Merry Christmas everybody, music. thank you for listening.
thought about it 